Okay, good to see you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Man, thank you guys. You know what? When, when it rains like this or it's cold in the morning, we think no one's coming to church. But we have the same amount of people in the first service. Congratulations. You can clap. That's good. Clap for yourselves. We, I, I, revival must be happening in Kenya if this is happening. It's amazing. We'll see if it is in the second and third service too. So please, if you have not signed up to the conference, you don't want to miss it. We've expanded our, our, our stations, our uh, connect stations to both sides, and they work today. They work. So if you go to the computer on the wall, you can sign up for the Love the Bible conference. You can sign up for baby dedication, visitors, a sign up there. Um, that way at the beginning of every month, looking at the last month, we can have the visitors tent outside to greet you properly. All kinds of things to do on that sign up. So go to the wall and sign up for that. Romans chapter 5, along with the whole Bible, I hope you understand this. Um, and, and Romans chapter 5 especially points to the person of Christ in magnificent ways, points towards the person of Christ in these first four chapters, um, pronouncing the guilt of every single person who's ever been born. And it's not just this, okay, chapter one, verse one, you are guilty, period, move on, receive Christ. It is a spirit-filled, intellectual, logical, in that order, by the way, because if you're not spirit-filled, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you will never find the truth. Truth is not an intellectual pursuit. Truth is the pursuit of a person. That person is Christ, and he must reveal himself to us. And in revealing himself to us, then we can understand truth, and he has chosen the triune God, uh, God in agreement has chosen to reveal himself to us through the Bible. As I was praying right before we begin this uh, sermon and right after the worship, I said, thanks to God for, for preserving his word supernaturally through blood. It began with the blood of Christ being spilt as the word of God was crucified. But through the ages, men and women have given their lives so that we could hold this book, so that we could open the pages of Scripture. Jesus Christ said not one jaunt, not one tittle will in no wise be removed from the law, or the, the idea is his word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away, the Bible says. This wasn't just some ambiguous, unclear verse, and never approach the Bible as a figurative book. The Bible is quite literal. It is way more literal than it ever was metaphorical or figurative. And even when it is giving us metaphorical or figurative language, it will always, within the text of that figurative language, tell us it's figurative. You can always find it. And so when Jesus says that his word will never pass away, it was a prophecy talking about the supernatural preservation of this book. People have had, tried to destroy it. Roman Catholics tried to prevent the world from translating it. But God cannot be stopped. His will cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped, and it was his will that all the nations of the world have this in their language. Perfectly translated, by the way. If you've never read Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter, it will increase your faith understanding through that book how supernaturally this Bible has been preserved into all these different languages. We haven't lost 
1% of the Bible's meaning from ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek to modern day English in a literal translation of the Bible. We're not talking about non-literal translations of the Bible like the Good News Bible. If you have a Good News Bible or a, a message Bible, um, just don't go to the store and buy tissue paper for the next month and use that. But if you have a literal translation, it has been supernaturally preserved. <laughs> and so we find ourselves not in Romans 1 verse 1, you're guilty, period, receive Christ. No, four chapters of the most brilliant, of course, because it's Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, convincing not just us, which we need convincing, by the way, even though we already believe in it, and we're going to learn a little bit why today, but the whole world can be convinced, and it talks about it in, there in chapter 2, that the whole world is guilty and their mouths may be shut. I like the masculine, masculine language of the Bible. It's not this feminine, you know, just so you know, God really loves you because you've had a few failures here and there. Okay? No, no. That the whole world will know that they are guilty, unrighteous, unclean, wicked, and that their mouths may be shut, we've learned in these four chapters. That's what the Bible says. People have no right to go out and proclaim their own goodness. They have no right to proclaim their own works, their own deeds. And we have a responsibility to proclaim the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. It says here in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Romans. Let me read the first five verses and that's all we'll have time for. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not dis That is like one of the treasure verses of all of the book of Romans. And we'll get to it. The Bible in the first four chapters, as I had mentioned, most wonderfully has convinced the world there can be no doubt. There can be no doubt that we are guilty and in our guilt, which by the way, other religions believe we're guilty, but in our guilt, there is no way out of our guilt. There is no way out of our condemnation without a Savior who comes to us, who is qualified, who is sufficient to pay for our sins. There can be no doubt. You know, I, I spent several years actually, I, I haven't so much in the last five years, but several years trying to reach out to the Muslim community here in this county. I went to almost every mosque I could try to find in this, in, in this entire city. Many outside that were in this county, outside of Eldoret. And it was my goal to share the gospel with every imam of every mosque in the county. I don't think I made it, so I, I got to get back to work. And it wasn't difficult, in fact, not at all, to tell the imams that the whole Islamic nation is guilty. They agree that they have sin. They agree they have guilt. 
The process on how to absolve the guilt is much different. They are relying on what they call the mercy of Allah. Allah is merciful. They always say that. But there's always doubt and there's no disagreement there either. I say, okay, you say Allah is merciful in that if you do a lot of good things, if you attempt to fulfill all the six pillars of Islam and all these different things, then maybe in his mercy, he will allow you to come into paradise. That's exactly what they believe, by the way. And so I always give him this courtroom illustration of how it is impossible for somebody to absolve one's guilt through mercy. And I usually would say, okay, if I murder your family and I am arrested and I'm taken to court and I stand before the judge and the jury and I say, yes, I murdered this man's family, but I'm really sorry. And I promise that from this day forth, I will do many good things. I'll pray, I'll go to mosque, I'll give alms, I'll even take a pilgrimage to Mecca. I'll give adherence to the prophets of the, the Quran and the Torah, and I will listen to the wisdom of the Injil. If I do all that, can I, can I be forgiven? Not one Muslim, not one Imam has agreed with me that that would be proper of the judge to actually forgive. And you know what's interesting too about um, forgiveness? I noticed something when I came and I moved to this country that forgiveness is not understood by a lot of people because somebody would smash into the back of our car, total the, the back of our car. I, I've, I've been in so many accidents. Most of them are Matatu's faults. And when we're like, you got to pay for this. We're going to have to wait for the police. They're like, please forgive. I'm like, well, I do forgive you, but you still got to pay for it. And I noticed that to them, forgiveness meant to let them go. They don't have to pay for it. There's no consequences for actions. Do you understand? That's not what forgiveness is. That's the doctrine of cheap grace. Grace that doesn't actually have any foundation in payment, any foundation in sacrifice. We were not forgiven just because we looked up to God and said, please forgive me, I'm sorry. We are forgiven because Jesus Christ poured out all of his blood on the cross and his blood is sufficient payment for our sins. Somebody has to pay. You know, there's never been a free lunch in the history of humanity. Somebody always has to pay. In fact, there was one um, atheist, biologist, and brilliant scientist, also a philosopher, who became a Christian. And somebody, in a brief passing by conversation, said, why did you become a Christian? And I guess he was in a rush because he gave a weird short answer, but he said, there's never been a free lunch. Somebody always has to pay. Christianity is the true religion. And after this convincing of what's happened in these four, you have chapter one convincing us that the pagan is guilty. And not only are they guilty, even if they've never heard the name of Christ, even if they've never read a Bible, they are without excuse in their paganism. And chapters two and three, it convinces us that not only are the pagans guilty, it gives us three more categories of people. It gives us the religious moralist, and then it gives us the religious Jew, and then, and I thank God for this, it talks about Christians also being guilty. It, it, we're not transferring out of religious moralism or Judaism into a Christianity. Now we're not guilty like the pagan, like the religious person or the Jew. We're all guilty. And the warning to the Christian is don't think you're better than the Jews or the religious person because you will fall under the same trap 
as the religious person or the Jew. We can never think we're better than they. In fact, it says it right there in chapter 3. What then? Verse 9, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are under sin. Talking to the Christians in Rome and all Christians of all time. And we have a natural tendency to want to exalt our own religion to the detriment of even other people who are part of our own faith that go to different churches. Now, now listen, I believe very strongly, and it's not just a belief, it is a fact that we must speak out against heresy. We must. People still get offended with me. Um, I have to speak out against Catholicism that is so pervasive in Kenya, the word of faith movement that is so pervasive in Kenya. There's churches that surround us everywhere that are doctrines of demons. They're not churches. They're temples of demons. Everywhere around us. We got this church to our left, my left, your right. We got a Branhamite church right across the street. If you don't know what that is, look that up. We have a Mormon church over here. And it, it's like they're increasing. These 19-year-olds, they have badges that say elder on them. They've, nothing, they've done nothing elderly their whole lives. What are they talking about? Everywhere. But within this world of all these heresies and false religions, there is a remnant of God that goes out beyond Calvary Chapel Eldoret. There are Christian people in this city. And listen, I'm all for promoting our church. To me, this is the best church in this nation. But we do have to be careful of sectarianism. And that's what Romans 3 is talking about. Don't think we're better than they. Don't start fighting. Don't be like, oh, you got to get circumcised or you got to put something on your head. No trousers, no tattoos, no piercings. One is enough, one and done. No, none of that. We got to leave those things alone and we have to join forces with the kingdom of God on earth, the true kingdom of God. And so after all of this convincing, after all of this brilliant doctrine that we've received, now in these five verses, he gives us Three practical benefits of being saved by faith. Being saved by grace through faith. That is peace, grace, and hope are things that we now have having been born again by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and listen, we have to be careful. Um... I know most of you probably are not interested in what I may, may say in terms of the debates, and I'm glad you're not. There's debates between Reformed theology, Armenian theology, Anabaptist theology, Catholic theology, Wesleyan, Wesleyan theology, all these different theologies. And this resurgence of Reformed theology um, over the past really 30, 40 years, where now um, you got all these people who have tons of YouTube hits that are Reformed Bible teachers and Calvinists. Now, I reject Calvinism with all of my heart, with all of my mind. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the biggest things that bugs me about Calvinism is their methodology. But one of the things we have to understand that the reform movement has tried to do, and reform theology is somewhat different than Calvinistic hyper theology. There are major differences. There's a spectrum for, for those of you who've studied this. But, but understand this. One of the things that the reformed community I think is trying to do and I, and, I, and, I, and I appreciate it is they want to take all of the 
um, ability of man to save himself and any hint of it to their detriment of not actually even believing in free will and put all of the glory of salvation on God for which that is absolutely what the Bible is trying to teach us especially in the book of Romans so when we even use language like put our faith in Christ it's only because of Christ that we have access to faith itself we have no access to faith without Christ we have no access to grace without Christ And so in this salvation, in this becoming born again, we now in chapter 5 move on from this wonderful convincing to now these benefits of those who are born again. And those benefits is this assurance that brings peace because of grace that gives hope in these five verses that we've read. And these things are immeasurable in their value. It cannot be counted in gold. It cannot be counted in silver or precious stones or any amount of money or any amount of person other than the person of Christ on how valuable peace, grace, and hope are. Peace, grace, and hope. You see this. Therefore, we having been justified. Therefore, why is he saying therefore? Because of the previous four chapters. Therefore, it's like, okay, we settled that. You're guilty. You can't save yourselves. I know you know you're guilty, but stop using circumcision or temple worship or whatever other religion to think you're right with God. Here's the good news. You're already justified by faith. Therefore, having understood that all of this is true, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now he, he went through his sermon in four chapters, and now he is like, okay, it's because of Christ that we have salvation. It's because of Christ that we have access to grace. It's because of Christ that we have access to grace through faith. And because of Christ in our salvation, we have peace. Peace is a confidence because of the hope we have in Christ. Now, it's important to note that the Bible does not say we have peace with the devil, that we have peace with the world, or that we have peace with the flesh. Or that we have peace with sin. Life is still a battle and extremely painful. But it is no longer a battle with God and because we've been justified and reconciled, we have real peace with God. We don't have peace with the enemy. And so when pastors present this peace, because by the way, people are looking for peace. People don't want to live in turmoil. They don't want to live in anxiety and depression and fear and paranoia and insecurities. We none of us want to live in that. So when we hear this Protestant Christian message of peace, you have peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. So many pastors and preachers make the mistake of not defining exactly what the peace is that we have. We don't have peace with the enemy. We don't have peace with the world. We don't have peace with the flesh. We don't have peace with sin. So when pastors offer peace, people are like, yes, I'll take some. Give me that peace. I want it. They're like, okay, peace is mine. And then they go back out into the world and they realize they're still getting attacked by the enemy. They're still getting attacked by the world. They're still receiving attacks from the flesh and sin. And they're like, that preacher was lying to me because those things cause pain. 
They cause trouble and tribulations, which is exactly why he mentions tribulations, because he does not want us to think the peace being mentioned here is some sort of peace with Satan, the world, sin, or flesh. It is peace with God that we've been given, which is the greatest peace. But because we have such small vision, because we have such small understanding of what is good and what is precious and what is needful and what is an absolute necessity for our lives, when we don't get peace from the world, when we don't get peace from the attacks of Satan or because of the sin and flesh, we think we've been lied to because we would rather, many of us, would rather have peace from those things than peace with God. Don't ever try to look for peace with the world. We are in a battle with the world. It is not a fun battle. It is a bloody, vicious, tumultuous battle. And you're not supposed to be at peace with the world. Jesus Christ said, I did not come to bring peace. But I came to bring a sword, father against son, mother against daughter, brother against sister. We're not supposed to be at peace with our family if our family tells us not to follow Christ. We're not supposed to be at peace with the world. We're supposed to be in battle. And not necessarily battle with the persons, but the battle with the principalities and the powers that motivates the persons in the world. We're not called to be at peace with the world. We're certainly not called to be at peace with Satan. It's like, listen, man, I got peace now, bro. Just chill out. <laughs> don't, don't attack me. No, they're not at peace with you. We're not supposed to be at peace with the flesh or the sin that tempts us through the flesh in our life. We're not supposed to be at peace. You are supposed to crucify that flesh every single day, not give in to it. You don't go up to the flesh or the sin that tempts you through the flesh inside and be like, listen, we're at peace now, man. It's all good. Let's just get along. You, will, you don't ever get along with your flesh. Do you ever speak to yourself? Do you ever sit there and like, oh my gosh, that is so gross, Josh. Ah, Josh, why do you think that way? Pride. I, I heard a definition of pride. And we may talk about this a little later. I, I heard a, a, a sermon this last week and he, and he says... Lowliness or humility is the opposite of a sense of entitlement. Isn't that a great definition? I'm entitled to a hello when I come to church. I'm entitled to a smile from my friends. And when they don't give it to me, I'm angry, so many of us would say. Oh, yeah, I'm going to remember that person didn't greet me properly. And until we realize that the only thing that we're really entitled to is hell, then we can never look up into heaven. We are not entitled to any good thing. It's only because of God's goodness and grace and love that we have the privilege and the honor of the good things in our lives. We're not entitled to a smile from our friends and family. You're not entitled to good treatment in this world. We're not to be at peace with this world. I heard that definition. And I was like, oh, Lord, I am so prideful. I had to pause it. You know how you listen to stuff on YouTube? And do you ever hear sermons and you have to pause it? And you're like, I got to write that down or I'm going to forget it. It wasn't that I needed to write down because I'm never going to forget that definition. I had to pause it because it hurt so bad. I'm like, wait a minute, preacher. Oh, I'm so prideful thinking I deserve respect or good treatment. 
peace with the world not only is unattainable for the Christian, it should never be sought after because the Christian is at war with the world. This peace that is being mentioned here is a peace with God. The understanding that we have complete assurance of salvation. That just because we go out and sin doesn't mean we, oh, you're not born again, you sinned. Okay, do something righteous. Okay, you're born again. Oh, you sinned, you're not born again. Do something righteous, you're born again. What kind of terrible salvation would that be? And listen, I'm not here, don't try to assess if I'm once saved, always saved. Don't do that. Oh, he's once saved, always saved. I knew he was a closet Calvinist. No, don't do that. I'm not a Calvinist. But golly, are we, do we really think that God's salvation is as flimsy as what some Arminius believe it is? That if you sin in your last act of life, you're going to hell? What a terrible... Do you know what that kind of theology is? That's the theology of Islam. That's the theology of Mormonism. And Jehovah's Witnessism, that you better do right, find yourself doing right, because, because you're going to die if your last act was a sin, you're going to hell. Golly, do you understand how wicked? Well, maybe you don't. I was going to say, do you understand how wicked my mind is? I hope you don't. We would, none of us would have any friends if we could read each other's minds. Can you imagine reading your friend's mind? He would just walk around like, oh. You thought that of me while smiling at me, you jerk. Let me tell you something. I sin a lot more than I am righteous. Because sin doesn't just start with the action, it begins in the heart. And I'm not saying I'm out there pursuing sin. Understand, I am a Christian. I do not go out there to pursue sin. That is the sign of not being saved. I'm not talking about habitual sins. Like, no, I can be a drunkard. And if you want to know the, the, the real biblical doctrine of habitual sin, it is not even years and years of sin. You will spend this day for the rest of your life sinning. Habitual sin is calling sin good and good sin. That's the real understanding of habitual sin. People who go out, no, I love Jesus, but I'm going to live with my boyfriend. No, I love Jesus, but every now and again I need to go to TMT and get drunk. Just let loose. God loves me. He understands. No, that is the definition of not being a Christian because of habitual sin. Habitual is not much an action, which it, it, it is, but it is a belief system. Habitual sin is a belief system before it is an action. Because our belief systems always result in actions, it will result in continued sin. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about assurance of salvation. That as I walk towards Christ and stumble, and yes, I will stumble and you will stumble for the rest of your life, I have an advocate with the Father that has bled on the cross for the atonements of this sin and all of my sins are forgiven past, present, and future. And I have assurance in Christ. My salvation doesn't rest on my ability not to sin, but rests on Christ's abilities and His sacrifice. That is very good news, guys. For me, it's really good news because I'm messed up. I got issues up here. I got pride, such wicked pride all the time. I, I, still to this day, I'll talk to people who have, yeah, they've disrespected me. I'm like, you disrespectful little person. To this day, it was a couple weeks ago. I was on the, having a troublesome phone call with somebody. Don't worry, it's none of you. And I'm like, you disrespectful little I almost called him a punk. I didn't. I didn't. And I'm thinking afterwards, after hearing that definition of humility, and I'm sitting there like, I don't deserve any respect from anyone. 
Why am I trying to receive it? Why am I trying to get it from them? Lowliness and humility is the opposite of a sense of entitlement. We are entitled to nothing. And, and everything else is just a blessing. Peace with God, not with the world, not with Satan, not with the flesh, and not with sin. You are to a, mount a strategic military attack on your flesh every single day. No, I will not give in to the flesh. I will not watch that movie. I will not listen to this music. I will not go to that place. I will not have those friends. Because I am mounting an assault on my flesh. An attack all the flesh. And the good thing is, is the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds in Christ Jesus. We've been given all the tools to absolutely conquer the flesh. To destroy sin in our lives. Adrian Rogers, the great southern preacher, once said, there is never a necessity to sin given to us in the New Testament. Now, he's not giving the doctrine of perfectionism, but every single sin can be conquered in your life when you mount the proper attack, when you have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Don't confuse this peace with the wrong peace. We have peace with God, and this peace is eternal. Also, this is not the peace of God spoken of in other places in Scripture, such as Philippians 4, 7. Cast all your cares upon him, the Bible says. In Philippians, it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, make your thanksgiving and request, or your request known unto God, and he will guard your heart richly in Christ Jesus, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will dwell in your hearts richly. So, so understand that that's not the peace. That is not the peace with God. That's the peace that continue is poured out from God. That when you do not do your part to mount an assault against the world, against uh, the flesh and against sin in your lives, you will not have the peace from God, though you already have the peace with God being talked about in Romans chapter 5. You just don't have peace that passes all understanding in every circumstance and every tribulation without prayer. That the, the Bible is telling us in Philippians chapter 4 that the greatest way to constantly have the flow of peace from God in your life is prayer. Though we are already at peace with God through salvation. So, after all these chapters, he's now giving us these three practical benefits of salvation and peace is one of them. Peace. Understanding we're saved. Assurance of salvation. And listen, guys. This becomes so much more precious the older you get. Now, I know... Most of us are very young, and what I mean by very young is we're not in our 60s or 70s. When you get to 60, 70, this piece means a lot more because you're, 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 you're going to die soon physically. And we need to rest in this. We're like, I trust Christ. You know what's interesting about Matthew chapter 7, that incredible chapter at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? And... It, if you want to do yourself a massive lifetime favor, go study the Sermon on the Mount in depth because it is by far the most glorious teaching ever to come into the hearing of mankind. And in Matthew chapter 7, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible to teach, I've taught it so many times, is when those people... Say, Lord, Lord. And he tells them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And he cast them into hell. 
Notice what they say. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many miracles? What's the problem there, ladies and gentlemen? Never mention your works in front of God. That is the equivalent of not being saved. And it is indicative of every other religion, even weird religions in Protestant Christianity. It is the difference between the real Christians who will never mention their own works in front of God. Can you imagine the audacity of mentioning, hey, I volunteered at Calvary Chapel Eldoret. What are you talking about? You're sending me to hell. I went to church. I gave 0.9% of my income. I did that. Do you see that that's the biggest mistake in Matthew 7 of the unbeliever? They're mentioning their own works. It's the difference of being born again and not being born again. When we come before Christ, why should he let us sin? Oh, because you died on the cross and your blood is sufficient payment for my sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is why we're born again. We have peace because of this. We rest in this. Now, also, secondly, we have grace. Now, notice what the Bible says in verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this grace is not just the grace that we have received for salvation and now we can begin a work based relationship after salvation. No, this is the very grace that not only we're saved by, but the very grace we're sustained by all throughout our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are standing in this salvation today, even years after we've been born again. We have obtained an introduction Or better yet, we have obtained our access into grace. Please listen. I'm going to read some of my notes. Into the realm of grace or the life of grace. The life where grace is available every day. A never-ending river of grace. By faith, we've entered into this access to grace that we need daily. We don't live in the realm, the sphere, and the life where law dominates. Law produces shame, guilt, restlessness. It incites us to sin, according to Romans 7. Pride. We live in the realm and sphere and life where grace dominates. Grace produces peace. Joy, love, understanding, humility. The Bible says in Romans 5, later on, where sin, Romans 5.20, abounds, grace much more abounds. says, moreover, the law entered that offenses might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. This is big. Please, Please try to meditate on this. In the life where grace dominates, sin is still active in our lives. Therefore, we grow in a grace-dominated life that still sins in gratitude and love for he who gave us grace, who continually pours out grace. The Father gave us grace and we grow in our gratitude and love for him. Jesus Christ accomplished grace and we grow in our gratitude and love for him. Because grace is poured out because sin abounds. That is the life dominated by grace. But a life dominated by law is just the opposite. In the life where the law dominates, we in our sin that abounds heap, bring unto ourselves guilt, shame, and condemnation in our lives, or 
If we're deceived, if we think we're fulfilling the law, we heap pride and self-righteousness in our lives, in any case, leaving out God entirely. Did Did you follow that? Was that too seminary? Listen, what the Bible is saying there in Romans 5.20, and it's talking about this doctrine of grace as opposed to living in the law, it's not just saying being saved by grace, but we stand in grace. I think you got that. But when somebody is walking in a law-based relationship, I do this, you give this. It's uh, I give and I receive. I work and I am blessed. When you do that, if you're constantly sinning, which you are, even those lives who are dominated by by grace constantly sin, that's why he says where grace abounds, then, or excuse me, when sin abounds, grace abounds. But when you're doing law and you're sinning, you're bringing to yourself guilt and shame condemnation. There's no peace in that. It's just guilt, shame, condemnation. And by the way, if you always, what's the litmus test? If you always feel guilty, if you always feel shame, if you always feel condemned, guess what? You're living law. It's a law-based relationship. Those are the signs, but not this habitual sin, but when you are sinning and you live the life dominated by grace, you live in the realm of grace, then you're like, oh, you're going to forgive me again? Oh, I love you so much. You're pouring out grace. Grace abounds in my sin. I love you so much. I'm grateful. Do you see the difference? And those who are living in the law who aren't feeling guilty and condemned, which they should if they're living in the law because they're sinners, But the deception of Judaism and other religions is this. It's this is, then it will produce the opposite. Maybe you won't feel condemned, but because you're living a law and you think you're doing righteousness, you will be self-righteous and you'll be prideful. Either way, it still is a direction not walking towards God, walking away from him. It's, it's, It's brilliant how Paul's doing this. It really is. A life dominated by grace is a life filled with peace and hope. We stand in grace. We're not just saved by grace, but we stand in grace. We don't start in grace and continue in law. Continuing in law is the earning and deserving. Earning and deserving. I've earned this, I deserve this. I've earned this, I've deserved this. And thirdly, hope. And rejoice in the hope and glory of God. We have hope. We have assurances. God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. He can be trusted. Three times hope is mentioned here. Hope looks to the future. Receiving the promises of God, of glory. And points us towards Christ. It's so important that we know that, that we have assurances. For I consider, Paul says in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. We have this hope in Christ Jesus The hope of assurance of salvation. That one day, whether we die through old age or an accident or through the second coming of Christ, that we will be with him because of grace. And that gives us peace and hope. Have you ever, after you got born again, really born again, you've walked away from your sin. Many of us has experienced this. And after walking with Jesus for a period of time and enjoying the person of Christ and the grace that he offers on a daily basis, mercies new to us every morning, have you ever had this thought? How could I have lived so long without Christ? Many of you shaking your heads. I used to have that thought. How could I have done this? How could I have grown up in a teenager 
my whole teenage life without Christ. And then 18, 19, 20, 21. How? How? I had no peace. There was no joy. There was only anxiety and fear. And that's why, as the hymn writer said, there's no guilt in life anymore, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And it's the power of Christ in you or those who believe in Jesus Christ. Peace, grace, and hope. And it does say, but we also glory in tribulations. He says, and not only that, don't think that this peace, hope, and grace is something that cannot be defined, that now your life is a trajectory of promotions and financial blessings and no pain and nothing. No, no, no. But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint. It doesn't disappoint. It's like, okay, I'm going through this pain, but I have hope. I have an eternal salvation. I have this eternal blessings that flow from God in his grace. This is not a doctrine that tries to alleviate the pain in your life, tries to avoid tribulations. This is a doctrine that gives you strength through tribulations and by the way, wants to put you through more tribulations for the glory of Christ. You think Paul was sitting there like, you know what? I'm pretty sure I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be thrown in a dungeon. They usually stone me before they do that. They usually beat me before they do that. I was promised peace. <laughs> I ain't going to go. I ain't going back to Jerusalem. Or I ain't going to Rome. By the way, this is so ingrained in us, not just African culture, but all human cultures to prosper physically. It is so ingrained in us that even the Christian people are telling Paul, don't go. The Holy Spirit has come and told me that you are going to be hurt. You're going to be whipped. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be imprisoned. Don't go. Paul's like, wait a minute. When I joined the ministry, I was already, it was already prophesied to me. I was promised prison and, and beatings and stonings and shipwreck. I was promised all this. So you're not telling me nothing new. I am going towards the tribulation and not away from it. I'm going towards it. Stop being the Christian who has believed a false doctrine that your Christianity exists so you can avoid tribulation. Your Christianity exists so that you can walk through it successfully, bringing glory to Jesus Christ. The word here for like patience and endurance, this, this word is hupomone. It means strength while bearing up under a load. Strength while carrying a load. So that, as it goes on to say, which is this really cool, that Greek word, hupomone, then it goes, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Two things here, and I'm running, I'm out of time, but two things. One is that that hupomone, the Holy Spirit, stepped into your body and gave you enough strength to squat whatever tribulation comes in your life. You got pain? Good. The Holy Spirit's in you to help you carry it. You have tribulations? Good. The Holy Spirit is in you to give you the strength to carry it. Do you see? We're not supposed to avoid these things. Oh, and any doctrine that comes into the door, you come through the door of a doctrine that says Christianity means no problems with anyone. You have been sold a bill of goods if you believe that. Christianity, by the way, problems with a lot of people. <laughs> fights, quarrels. Not, not vain fights and quarrels, but promoting Christ. The Bible says that the world will hate you, but know this, the world hated me first. 
And you start to realize, why are all these people talking bad about me? Why are these things happening? What's going on? It's because you love Jesus Christ. And even those in the church hate Jesus Christ, the real person of Christ. They've created a Christ in their minds, which is an idol that is just some sort of genie in the bottle giving them whatever they want. When in fact, true Christianity is us following the will of Christ, even if that will leads us into the fire of tribulations. It's so important that we know that. So that's the first thing. You, you get the Holy Spirit to step inside of you to give you the strength to go through tribulations. Don't avoid them. Don't avoid pain. Because n- no pain, no gain. Do you think the Olympic marathon runner is like, listen, I really want that gold medal, <laughs> but I don't want to work for it. If, is, if, is there a way that I can go run this marathon at the Olympics and get the gold without ever practicing beforehand running? Do you know there's never been one person in the history of the world that has gone to the Olympics for running that did not run thousands of kilometers before they got there? And we think as Christians, like, no, we want the gold, but I don't really want to fight for it. I don't want to train for it. I don't want to work for it. And the work that we do for it is not work unto law. It's work for grace and gratitude and love. And secondly, here's the deal. It's like, okay, you want to know where the down payment of hope came from? Do you want to know where the down payment of hope came from? It's the Holy Spirit in you. I gave you the down payment of hope. Do you sense the Holy Spirit in your life when you got born again? Absolutely you do. You have the Holy Spirit speaking to you all the time. That's the down payment of hope. It's like, okay, is this hope? Is this just something I have to believe in theoretically, intellectually, in my mind? No, this hope has a down payment and it's that your whole body, your soul and your heart has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? Do you see that's what he's saying? He's like, if you want to really not doubt hope, remember the Holy Spirit lives inside you and you know the Holy Spirit lives inside you, don't you, Christian? I hope you speak to the Holy Spirit every day. Let's have the worship team come on up. We're supposed to start the second service in five minutes. You have the Holy Spirit speaking to you every day, and I hope you speak to the Holy Spirit every day. I hope when you wake up, ladies and gentlemen, you say, hey, Holy Spirit, what would you have for me today? What are you speaking to me today? I know you're speaking me the word of God. Let me look at it all. That's what the Holy Spirit's speaking. Remind me of this during the day. Remind me of this. And there's something I wanted to preach on that I've forgotten. Let me me end with this. Don't think that peace comes in tribulations and pain alone. Because tribulations and pain for the unbeliever produces impatience and anger and hate. Don't think all pain, all tribulation produces patience in all people. It does not. That is not true. Pain and tribulations produces patience in the believer, not the unbeliever. So all of us and all of the nation of Africa and Kenya, which has gone through so much pain, fatherlessness, poverty, hunger, pain in the family, rape, molestation, pedophilia, all of this pain, it will not produce patience and glory in you if you're not born again. It produces hate and anger and impatience in the person who's not born again. So what that means is there is the potential in Kenya to bring a lot of glory to God and all of this pain and all of this tribulations for those who were pursuing Christ.
But there is the potential, which there is, tons of hate and anger and bitterness in the unbeliever who's not pursuing Christ. And I see it in a lot of people around the world. Hate, bitterness, and anger. Receive Christ and turn your pain and tribulations into glory for God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we've learned. Thank you for the glory we have in Christ, the salvation. Also, I pray as the ushers and deacons come forward to receive today's offering that you would grant us wisdom in the administration of these gifts. And Father, we thank you for sending your son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you came. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that each and every day you remind us of the truth about yourself. And that there is a never-ending river of grace that pours out on our lives. That our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And until we see you in heaven, find us faithfully walking through tribulations, not avoiding them, in the strength that you have given us. I pray we will receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.